He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. In my wildest dreams, I, I couldn't have imagined that I would be coming to you in this way, uh, by, by way of video, um, but someone in our house uh, this weekend has not felt great, and uh, we were not able to get a test over the weekend, and so out of an abundance of caution, uh, didn't want to share anything with you that uh, we didn't have to. Uh, we thought about Jeff preaching this morning, but I already had the sermon prepared, and in keeping with our Advent series, I wanted to be able to share this with you. I'm so excited about what the Lord has for us this morning, and, uh, and so although this is an unusual way uh, to preach for you this morning, uh, I trust that it will not be a distraction. And so let me just also say how thankful I am to Charles uh, for coming in on a Saturday night to uh, record this. So grateful for him and his ministry and uh, all of the things that he does behind the scenes that uh, so many are not aware of. So I'm so grateful for Charles. But as far as you're concerned, this is Sunday morning. And so let's continue worshiping and let's go to the Lord right now in prayer. Our Father, we are grateful for this day, and thank you so much that in light of certain curveballs that get thrown our way, we are able to continue on. So Father, I do pray, as I just mentioned, that this is not a distraction to anyone this morning. I pray that the gospel is heard clearly, and even though this message is coming over a video screen, Father, I do pray that it would be received well. I so long to be with my brothers and sisters in person, and hopefully next week or in the not-too-distant future, I'll be able to return. But Father, I do ask that you would continue to bless us. We thank you so much for how you have so richly blessed us, even when members of our congregation are not able to be here. So, Father, we do pray for those who are not able to be here on a regular basis. We pray, Father, that you would heal them if they have not been able to attend because of illness. We pray, Father, that you would bring them back safely. We pray, Father, that uh, you would help us to be mindful of those around us who are struggling and in pain. Help us to pray for them, reach out to them, and let them know how much we love them and care for them. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning as we uh, look at this passage in Colossians that our hearts would sing and rejoice for what Christ has done with, for us and what he has provided for us. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray, amen. 
Well, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who wouldn't dare listen to Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving. And then there are those who think it should be played immediately after the 4th of July. Our family has always been firmly entrenched in the day after Thanksgiving camp. But as Nick highlighted last week, all that we've been through this year has had me personally wanting to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. And just so you know, I lost that fight. And as a family, we decided uh, that we would, uh, again, as always, as in years past, listen to Christmas music beginning after Thanksgiving. You know, everywhere you go this time of year, the air is filled with Christmas songs. And while there are fun Christmas songs and, and silly Christmas songs, I find it refreshing that in this world that is so hostile toward Christianity, you still hear the old Christmas hymns that are filled with all of the things that we're focusing on in our Advent series this year. There are hymns about hope in Christ and hymns about joy from Christ. There are hymns about Christian love and there are hymns about peace. Listen to these familiar words. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. These are the words of a Christmas classic, one that you no doubt have sung many times. And this week, we are focusing on Jesus' best gift of peace. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of just how many Christmas songs make the connection between peace for mankind and the birth of Jesus. For instance, it came upon a midnight clear. O holy night, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O little town of Bethlehem. Each of these songs celebrate the fact that Jesus' birth signals the possibility of peace. And I say possibility of peace because, as we'll see in this morning's text, the assurance of peace would only be confirmed in Jesus' death. Colossians 1, 15-20 is known as the Christ hymn because some scholars believe Paul was quoting from an early 
Christian hymn. So you could say that Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20 is the blueprint for every Christmas hymn dealing with peace because it focuses on how Jesus made peace between God and man. Hymn writers for ages past have thought deeply about the gift of peace that Jesus offers us. It's only natural that they would think about the message of the angels to the shepherds when news of Jesus' birth was first breaking through heaven to earth. So what was the angelic message? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, many of us are familiar with the Christmas truce of 1914. Listen to this summary from History.com. Starting on Christmas Eve, many German and British troops fighting in World War I sang Christmas carols to each other across the lines. And at certain points, the Allied soldiers even heard brass bands joining the Germans in their joyous singing. And at the first light of dawn on Christmas Day, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines across no man's land, calling out, Merry Christmas, in their enemies' native tongues. And at first, the Allied soldiers feared it was a trick, but seeing the Germans unarmed, they climbed out of their trenches and shook hands with the enemy soldiers. The men exchanged presents of cigarettes and plum puddings and sang carols and songs. Some Germans lit Christmas trees around their trenches. And there was even a documented case of soldiers from opposing sides playing a good-natured game of soccer. German Lieutenant Kurt Zimisch recalled how marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. So while this example of seemingly impossible peace in the history of World War I is heartwarming, the peace that Luke is speaking of in his gospel and the, the peace the hymn writers are speaking of in their Christmas songs is an even more impossible peace. Christmas is not primarily about peace among men. Christmas is about peace between God and man. Now, as we'll see in our text this morning, peace among men, or what we might call horizontal peace, is a byproduct of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But before there can be any type of meaningful and lasting restoration, there has to be redemption. So Jesus' best gift of peace is primarily about man being made right with God. The big idea of my sermon this morning is peace with God comes in, through, and by Jesus. That's why I've entitled my sermon, The Prepositions of Peace. 
while we consider verses 15 through 18, we will primarily be focusing on verses 19 and 20. So if you're taking notes, I have three main points this morning, and they lean on three prepositions that we see in verses 19 and 20. And the first point is this, peace with God comes in Jesus. See, peace was only possible because of the deity of Christ. So again, if you're taking notes, the first point is peace with God comes in Jesus. Let's look again at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verses 15 to 20 reveal three all-inclusive areas of Jesus' lordship. Jesus is Lord of creation. We see that in verses 15, 16, and 17. He is Lord of his church. That's in verse 18. And Jesus is Lord of redemption, which is the area that we're going to be focusing on this morning. How is redemption or peace between God and man made possible? Well, it begins with the preposition in. There is no peace between God and man if the fullness of God is not in Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, is the eternally existing Word of God. And John helps us think through this in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then down in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Whenever we think about the little baby Jesus, we must think about the little baby Jesus who was God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And by that, we understand that Jesus the Christ is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. This also brings to mind a conversation Jesus had about His deity with Philip. In John 14, we read this, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works." Though we don't have time to look too deeply into it this morning, this John 14 passage helps us to see that though Jesus is God, He is not God the Father. As Christians, we believe there to be one God, three persons. Jesus as God remains a distinct person within the Trinity. But back to Colossians 1.19 for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice it was all the fullness of God in Jesus. You know, I suppose Paul could have said, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But no, in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
We've seen the television commercials for cut-rate auto insurance carriers. And they advertise how they will make you legal by providing you the bare minimum coverage. And that's not what is happening here in our redemption. Jesus was not the bare minimum Savior who provided just enough righteousness to cover our sin. No, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we're, we're told that peace with God comes in Jesus. But, but look what else Paul reveals. Our redemption begins with God's pleasure. If there are any Chick-fil-A fans in here, you've no doubt noticed that not only do you get service with a smile, almost every time you have an interaction with a Chick-fil-A employee, you will hear two words. And everybody said, my pleasure. Friends, what kind of God do we serve? Is He one that reluctantly offered redemption? Was He begrudging of the fact that He sent His Son on behalf of rebellious people like me and you? No, it was His pleasure to save us. Peace with God comes in Jesus because God was pleased to send His Son, the God-man. So every time from here on out that you go through the Chick-fil-A drive through and you hear an employee say, my pleasure, think of Colossians 1.19 and be reminded it was God's pleasure to initiate reconciliation and redemption for you and me in Christ Jesus. So peace with God comes in Jesus and peace with God comes through Jesus. This is our second point. Peace with God comes through Jesus. Look again at the first half of verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. When we read, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, this means, this is the means by which God would reconcile all things to himself. And it becomes crystal clear the world thinks of reconciliation with God and, and redemption from our sins as a smorgasbord. Peace with God is thought of in, in terms of the Golden Corral or Western Sizzlin. But can we pick and choose our path to God? Can we walk down the buffet of spirituality and select the things that we believe will make us right with God? The common belief is that there are many ways to peace with God and that the road is broad to reconciliation and redemption. But what does the Bible say? Notice, it is through Jesus, and there is no other option. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, "'Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many.'" For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We all know John 3.16, but listen to John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
in Acts 4, 11 through 12, Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is through Christ alone that all things are reconciled to God. So that's why we say that peace with God comes only through Jesus. The extent of Jesus' reconciling work, it's comprehensive. It's all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Looking back at verse 16, we we read, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We've said that Jesus is Lord of creation, so it makes sense why he would be the conduit of reconciliation and redemption. In God's economy, only the Lord of creation can be the Lord of reconciliation and redemption. The question does come up, though, that if Jesus is reconciling to God all things, is Paul saying salvation is universal? Well, no. That that can't be the case because we've already seen at the beginning of verse 20 that peace with God comes through Jesus. And further explanation is given in the very next verse. Let your eyes fall to Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This makes sense because the group Paul is talking to, those who are now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, they are those inside the church that Jesus is Lord of. And because reconciliation comes through Jesus, Those who are not under the lordship of Jesus are still enemies of God. Jesus' reconciliation is the great dividing line because those who reject Jesus will not be reconciled to God. There's one more thing to see here with respect to peace with God coming through Jesus, and it happens to complement what we said earlier about it being God's pleasure to initiate reconciliation and redemption. The order of reconciliation found in verse 20 is important. It was God's good plan to reconcile us to himself. And it would not be right to say God is reconciled to us. In our fallen state, we are the ones who have left God, so we need to be brought back to him. It's Jesus reconciling us through himself to God that makes this possible. One commentator says it this way, reconciliation to God is an explicitly one-sided process. He does virtually everything. All we have to do is respond. Peace comes in Jesus. Peace comes through Jesus. And lastly, peace comes by Jesus. This is our third and final point. Peace comes by Jesus. 
Look at the end of verse 20 again. Making peace by the blood of His cross. It's only in Jesus who all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and it's only through Jesus by whom all things will be reconciled to God that we are told peace with God is possible. Christian, doesn't the end of verse 20 give you an incredible appreciation for what Jesus has done for you? See how he reconciled and redeemed you. Jesus made peace. Listen to Paul speak on this very issue from Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Peace with God comes by way of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus was the mediator between God and men, and were it not for His making it by the blood of His cross, there would be no peace. And how did he make peace? Again, through the shedding of his blood. Jesus was born to die. And he lived his life to satisfy that purpose. In glorifying God through his sinless life, Jesus showed himself to be our worthy substitute. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So in order to make peace with God on our behalf, Jesus willingly shed his blood. In two verses, we see Christmas linked with Easter. From the incarnation in verse 19 to the cross in verse 20, the way man is restored to peace with God is in, through, and by Jesus. But what is it about the cross of Christ that is so significant to us as Christians? After all, doesn't that seem like such an unlikely way to offer peace? Paul remarks in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus' bloody sacrifice is the way by which God has chosen to extend peace to mankind. And it's in that same passage, Paul says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. When you consider how God arranged for peace to be offered to mankind, I doubt any of us would have chosen to do it the same way. And isn't that like God? You know, I probably would have had Jesus being born at some first century Waldorf Astoria and reigning victorious on his war horse. But God's plan was to have him born in a lowly manger and laying down his life on a bloody cross. Friends, do you see how the gospel is so succinctly summarized in Colossians 1, 15 to 20? God created all things A reconciliation was required because man, and by extension the whole of creation, had rebelled against God. 
God sent His Son, who was fully God and fully man, to take upon Himself the sin of all who would repent of their sin and trust in Him alone. And the result is that all who will trust in the atoning work of Christ receive peace with God. Peace is one of Jesus' best gifts, and we celebrate the peace of Christ during this Advent season. But the peace we receive by, in, and through Jesus is not meant to merely make us right with God. There are implications to this peace. Receiving Jesus' gift of peace it makes us ambassadors of peace. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When we receive Jesus' gift of peace, we are to turn that peace back out toward others. Like Paul, we as Christ's ambassadors, we implore others to be reconciled to God. Our personal evangelism is shaped by Jesus' gift of peace. We take this peace that we've received from God out into the world, and we offer it to others. Another implication of receiving Jesus' gift of peace is that it affects how we live our lives toward others. I'd encourage you sometime to search your Bible for all of the exhortations that are in there to live at peace with others. There's no shortage of passages telling us how transformed our lives are to be by the peace of Jesus. God's plan for peace invading this world includes the everyday actions of His children. We take what Jesus has extended to us and we extend that toward others. The American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow knew what it meant to have no peace. After a succession of personal tragedies, Longfellow wrote Christmas Bells, now known as I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He wrote that on Christmas Day in 1863. Listen to how he processed his grief. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. In light of how peace comes in, through, and by Christ, no matter what difficulty we may face, all who are in Christ can along with Longfellow say, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, 
with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this peace that has been extended to us in, through, and by your Son, Christ Jesus. We do not deserve it. We cannot earn it. But by your grace, you have shown this peace to us. Father, help us to not take this peace for granted. I pray, Father, that if, if we have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin, and we have received this peace from you, may we be reminded of it every day. May we turn this peace back out toward others, both in loving them and caring for them, but also in our personal evangelism. Father, may we share this peace with others and show them how they too can be reconciled to you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never placed their faith in Christ alone, they've never repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus alone, and because of that, they have not received the peace that you extend toward all who will believe. It's my prayer this morning that they will bow their knee to Christ, that they will repent of their sin, place their trust in Him alone, and receive peace. Father, we're grateful for Your grace. We're grateful for Your mercy. And again, we say thank You for this peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and by the power of Your Holy Spirit, amen.